So a few weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Joel. And I won't ask you to raise your hands as I, uh, as I ask this question, but I would be curious, and you don't have to indicate this, but I'd be curious how many of us have ever read the Old Testament book of Joel prior to us beginning this study. Now, I'm certain that some of you have, but I'm also pretty certain that some of us never have. And it's not a long book. It's a short book. It's one of those books of the Bible that kind of gets overlooked, but it's got so much beneficial content that it would be a shame for us to overlook it. So we're not going to overlook it. We're continuing our study of it. And as we look today, we're in the middle portion of Joel chapter 2. And as we look at this section of Joel chapter 2, we're talking today about this idea of when it's time to return to the one who always loved you. That's a theme that you'll see here in these verses. So we're not looking at a long section today, and we're looking at Joel 2, starting with verse 12, and uh, verse 12 down to verse 17 is what we'll be looking at. But this is what it tells us in Joel chapter 2, starting with verse 12, we read this. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he, has, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that you've given us to be able to gather together today and to look at your word and to meditate on the content that we find in it. Lord, we're so grateful for it. We're so grateful for the privilege to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this that reveals things about your heart that, naturally speaking, we wouldn't have been as aware of. These are things that, that we wouldn't have naturally figured out. These are aspects of your character, aspects of your nature that you have made known to us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word together today, we pray that we'd be encouraged by it. We pray that you would help us to uh, develop a, a strong desire to walk closely with you. And as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, Lord, we pray that we would recognize particularly if we've been trying to live at a distance from you, that we would recognize that today is the day that you invite us to return to you. So we thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever experienced a season where you actually tried running from God? Did you ever try and do that? Just whether it was going on in your mind or whether it became visible to other people. Have you ever experienced a season where you could say, yeah, that is the season of my life where I was actually running from God? It's not a rational thing to do, right? 
but it's something that all of us have probably tried to do at some point or another in one way or another. And sometimes it's painfully obvious when we're trying to run from God. Sometimes it becomes just completely clear to everybody who knows us well. And then other times it kind of happens in, in very subtle ways. And our, our desire to be distant from Him, it, it shows up in this little way over here and, and this little way over here. But if we've been running from God, if you've been running from God, keep in mind, particularly when we look at a portion of Scripture like this that we're looking at today, that His compassionate heart invites us to return. Uh, years ago, I knew a couple that seemed very happy together and uh, they were planning on getting married, and then out of the blue, the woman just uh, disappeared. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what, what happened? Like, wh- where did she go? And it turns out she met a guy, and very quickly and abruptly left her fiancé and immediately married that guy. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, I didn't see that coming. And then within a few months, maybe even a few weeks, The man that she abruptly and quickly married became very abusive toward her, and there were all sorts of issues, and then within a few months, I noticed that she was back with her original fiancé. And I remember thinking, what happened? And what she ended up doing, you know, she, she left the man that she abruptly married, the man that was being abusive toward her. But again, now I see her with her fiancé, her original fiancé again, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, I don't know all the story, I don't know all the details, I don't know everything that went on, but I imagine that there's some hard stuff that they're dealing with right now. And this was going on right at the time, just prior to when my wife and I were getting married. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, what would I do if I was that man? What would I do if I was in his shoes? And one of the things that I observed was he very much loved her and he wanted her back. And so eventually in time they got married and and to my knowledge they're still together. Now I was thinking about that this week in looking at a portion of Scripture like this because it gives us this picture of what it looks like to run from God And yet God communicates to us that He's always loved us. And yet so often, and I I know I can speak this just for humanity in general, but I can most certainly speak this for my own life. I, I look at the times in my life where I've run from God and I think to myself, that wasn't rational. Why did I do that? There is no logic to the fact that I ran from Him then, or in this way, or during that season. Why was I running from Him? Why was I running from the one who loves me most? Why was I running from the one who, who created me and desires to have fellowship with me and has blessed me in countless ways? And you look at Scripture, and time and time again, what does the Lord do? He invites those of us that are in a season of running to return back to Him. Because He delights to show us His grace. He delights to show us His mercy. He delights to show us His forgiveness. He delights to show us His love. And that's demonstrated for the people of Judah, and by virtue of of, uh, us being part of the family of God, it's demonstrated for us as well as we look at the book of Joel chapter 2. So let me say this, just to set this up. If you've been running from God, whether you feel like it's in big ways or small ways, I hope that as we look at this portion of Scripture today, that you will start sensing a desire 
to return to him, that you'll see that now is the time to do so. Look, at, look again at what it tells us in verses 12 through 14, because it kind of sets up this picture of returning to God, and it illustrates this idea of a broken heart, what it's like to be brokenhearted. And let me say this before I reread these verses. A broken heart can be a very good thing. Look at verse 12 down to verse 14. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Let me pause there for a second. I'll I'll continue reading in a moment. But when it talks about this idea of rending your garments back then, a, a visible symbol that you were in mourning is you would just take your clothing, and clothing was considered like a very precious commodity. They didn't have machines that made their clothing. They had people that made their clothing, and clothing was expensive. Clothing was, uh, in many respects, a, a visible sign that you may have, may have been wealthy. It might have even been a, a part of your wealth as far as how you would measure your wealth. It, and there were even laws in place that if you, you took a garment from somebody that you had to give it back to them before night because your clothing was also basically your covers at night. And when you were in deep mourning, you would rip it. You would destroy it. You would rend it, as it's saying here. And so the advice, the counsel that they're given by the Lord through Joel is to rend their hearts. You know, rip your hearts, break your hearts, not just your clothes. Don't just go through the outward motions, he's saying here, right? Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Wouldn't it be nice if in life we didn't have to learn so many things the hard way? Is that an understatement? You know, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to learn so many things the hard way? But typically, it's the hard lessons that stick the best. I know in my own life, and probably in your own life, you could think back to lessons that you had to learn the hard way, but they're lessons you probably remember. And when we read through the Old Testament, we can, we can list many ways that the Lord had chosen to bless the people of Israel and bless the people of Judah. He sent them prophets, He sent them priests, He sent them judges, He sent them kings, He defended them, He performed miracles among them, He even revealed His Word to them before He revealed it to the rest of the world. And yet, in spite of all that, they did what humans always seem to do. In their own esteem, they elevated themselves over God instead of submitting themselves to God, and now they were learning the hard lesson of what that actually results in. Now, Joel and some of the other prophets, when you read through the Old Testament prophets, you could see that they revealed those errors to the people. They revealed this to the people. They made it known to them the ways in which they were, they were rebelling against God and going in their own selfish direction. But what, what ends up happening with prophets is, in many respects, they are often ignored until they're dead. So during the course of their life, during the course of their ministry, they're frequently ignored. It's usually generations that come afterward that look at them and say, hey, you know what? They actually were telling us the truth. We ought to listen to the counsel that they're given, but they're usually rejected in their own generation. And you you could see in many respects that happening all throughout the Old Testament period of time. So what did the Lord do for the people of Judah, even in the midst of all of this going on, the people that Joel is now serving among. Well, the Lord did them the favor of breaking their hearts. 
And that was a very good thing. It doesn't sound like a good thing, right? It results, I mean, just think about how many songs you listen to that really come back to hearts being broken. You know, so many of the, the most popular songs, so much literature, it all, it all comes back to this idea of, of someone's heart being broken. And a broken heart doesn't initially sound like a wonderful thing, but it could actually be a very good thing. And so the Lord actually does a favor for the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, by breaking their hearts. And if you, you saw earlier in the book what was taking place at the time, their whole land had been invaded by locusts. So I don't know the exact count, millions, maybe billions of locusts came in, destroyed the land, ate all the vegetation. The land was desolate. The people were now poor. The people were now destitute. The people were now at a spot where what they had placed their trust in was taken away. They had nothing to eat. They couldn't even come and and offer a grain offering or a drink offering in their worship to the Lord because there was nothing left. And so they're starving, their kids are starving, the land is starving, and it's desolate, and it looks like a bomb has been set off in Judah. Their land was now destroyed, their earthly hopes were dashed, and you have their idolatrous hearts crushed. Because up to this point, what they had been doing was going their own way, and effectively either worshiping themselves, or worshiping their own ideas, or worshiping idols, or worshiping their wealth, but forgetting about the God who loved them. And so what he does is he does them the favor. And it doesn't sound like a favor when you think about this idea of a swarm of locusts coming in and destroying the land, but he does them the favor of breaking their hearts. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The Lord spoke through Joel. We could see his words here in this passage, and what he wants to do is remind them of something that they've clearly been forgetting. They had spent so many years up to this point treating God like he was an afterthought. And you know what starts to happen when you treat God like he's an afterthought? You forget what God's nature is like. You start thinking, when you treat God like He's an afterthought, they were doing this and we've done this, when you treat God like He's an afterthought, when you don't have Him on your mind, you forget His character. You forget His nature. You think of God primarily through a lens of anger or justice or judgment. Those are the type of things that tend to come to our minds first when God is an afterthought. But here you have Joel reminding the people of of Judah that That God is not just the perfection of justice, He certainly is the perfection of justice, but that's not all He is. He's also the perfection of grace. He's also the perfection of mercy. He's also the perfection of love. And the Lord was inviting the people to return to Him with all their heart. He's saying, I want to welcome you back. I invite you to come back to me with all your heart. He invites them to repent of their self-serving independence with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and to come back to Him. The Lord wanted wanted the people to be reminded that there is blessing in repentance. And the Lord was more than willing to give them uh, relief in a very swift way from His hand of judgment. He was willing to give them relief. And he invites them to recognize this. He invites them to understand this. So just as he had been chastising them with this plague as these locusts came through, he was willing to relent and bless them once again. These are the words that he speaks through Joel. And that's such a hard yet beautiful testimony of God's nature that I think think it's beneficial for us to ponder in a personal way. 
Because we could look at the people of Judah and we could see the things that they were enduring and the things that they were experiencing. And from a distance, it's easy to look at these things and say, yeah, why didn't they wise up? But when I ask myself the same question, it's a little bit harder to answer. Why didn't I wise up earlier? Why didn't I wise up sooner? And I think sometimes what the Lord has to do for me and, and for you and for all of us is He needs to bring us to a point of desperation where He takes our heart and He does us the favor of breaking it for us so that we could get over our own selfish independence and realize that we are fully dependent on Him. And He invites us to repent of our unbelief. He invites us to repent of our rebellion. Has God ever blessed you with a broken heart? Have you ever experienced that blessing? Where He's blessed you with breaking your heart. And by the way, did you consider it a blessing at the time? (laughs) I don't know that I've ever considered it a blessing right in the moment. Usually it takes me a little time to get over my initial stage of grief, right? But we don't usually consider it a blessing at the time, but now, okay, now we look back. Do you consider it a blessing now? I would suspect you probably do if, if the Lord's been orchestrating something in your life and you've had enough time to ponder this and pray over it. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that you consider it a blessing now. As painful as it may be, one of the greatest blessings that the Lord does for us in life, just in general, is that He breaks our heart and He crushes our heart just enough that we get to that spot of repentance where we stop running from Him and we start running toward Him. He invites us to grieve over our rebellion and then turn to Him for healing. But we'll never turn to Him for for healing until we realize just how broken we are. So sometimes He makes that abundantly clear to us and then reminds us in powerful ways that He is the only solution. That's the heart of the Gospel. I love what Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, you have Jesus talking to some people as he's walking with them. And Scripture tells us, this is after his resurrection. And Scripture tells us in Luke 24, starting with verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And by the way, that's one of the blessings that the Lord does for us. It's actually one of the things I pray about as I'm preparing to preach the Word of God. I pray for myself in in proclaiming it, but I also pray for our church family and for those that will listen to the recordings of these, these messages, that the Lord would open our eyes, that He'd open our minds to understand the Scriptures, because we can't understand His Scripture without that assistance. And so you have Jesus opening their minds to understand the Scriptures, and He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what does Jesus say in this portion of Scripture that He wants to happen? What does He want to have happen? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all the nations, that it would begin in Jerusalem, but that all the nations would hear this. That people would be invited to repent. What Jesus did is He came to this earth, He's our Lord and Savior, He came to this earth to suffer for our rebellion. So I've rebelled against the Lord, you've rebelled against the Lord, and then Jesus, the Son of God, comes to this earth to suffer for our rebellion. And then what he did was he defeated the power of sin, and he defeated the power of death when he rose from the grave. And now through Jesus, we're offered forgiveness should we desire it. Through Jesus, we find redemption. Through Jesus, we find new life. Because Jesus has endured the penalty our sin deserved, we can repent 
of our unbelief. We can repent of our rebellion. And we can find complete healing of our brokenness through Him. And the Lord does all He can to convince our hearts of this truth. But there are two, people, two kinds of people in this world. There are those who will persist in their pride and go throughout life saying, maybe God exists, maybe He doesn't, but even if He does, I don't need Him and I don't need His intervention. And they basically live in a fantasy. If that's what your heart's convinced of, you live in a fantasy. Do you ever meet people that just kind of live in a fantasy? They live in a fantasy. Sometimes it's not even over spiritual things. Sometimes I meet people, I think, like, all right, you're living in a fantasy. Everything that you're enamored with is pretend. It is fake. And what does the Lord do for us? He shows us that you can either live in the fantasy of ignoring His presence, or you could recognize your need for Him. And one of the greatest blessings that the Lord will ever do for you is when He gets your heart to the spot where you recognize you absolutely need Him. That you are not self-sufficient. That you need His hand of healing. That you need rescue and redemption through Jesus Christ. That you need forgiveness. That you are not okay on your own. But that with Christ, you will become a new creation. And His sufficiency will be sufficient for you. But sometimes we like to to persist in our pride. And sometimes we like to go in a direction that we shouldn't go in in regard to these things. But the Lord invites us to come back to Him. And not only does He invite us to come back, but He invites to bring others. He invites us to bring others with us. And I love, I love what the Scripture illustrates when we look at verses 15 and 16. Because here you see an example of this idea of letting yourself and your family be set apart as the Lord's. Look at what it says in verses 15 and 16. It says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion... Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Now let's pause there for just a moment. Um, I mentioned last week that um, just for my own edification, I decided to audit a college course this semester. And it's a course that doesn't, I imagine, it doesn't sound like it's a sociology course. It's actually a sociology course, but it's called Hip Hop Culture. That's the, that's the, the name of the course. And I couldn't wait. I wanted to take it a year ago when I, I heard that Karen was offering it, but then I ended up teaching a class for them, and so that kind of interrupted my ability to be able to take it. But then I heard they were going to offer it again this year, and so I thought, all right, I'm going to take it this time. And it's early in the morning on Fridays. It's 7.55 in the morning. I thought, all right, I can swing it. I'm going to do it. So the first class was the other day. And in the midst of the class, the, uh, the professor put up a video for us to watch. And I'm not going to advertise what artist this was, and I'm not going to advertise what song this was, okay? So don't ask me, all right? Because I'm not going to say and if you can figure it out, good for you, but I'm not going to help you figure it out. Uh, some of you are already disappointed. I didn't even say what I was going to say about it, right? But he puts this video up here, and he's like, all right, I want you guys to see this. And in the video, you have the artist. He gets up there, and I happen to notice he was playing this clip from YouTube. The video has been viewed 74 million times. So as of Friday, the video has been viewed 74 million times. All right, that's your only clue. <laughs> it won't help you at all. Um, And apparently the song is quite popular with groups of young people. And in the lyrics to the song, you have the the artist openly bragging about 
his vanity, his rampant drug use, um, his, his disdain for authority, and his exploits for women, and, or with women, and, uh, and that's the essence of the song. Now, I recognize that it's not drastically different from a million songs that have been written on those same subjects, but this song was so brazen, particularly the thing, one of the things I was amazed with was how brazen the song was about the artist's drug use. Just how brazen the song was about that, how he was bragging about that. And as, as the song was playing, uh, he only, the professor only, only played a minute of it. He paused and asked me, uh, knowing that I have four teenage children, he said, John, what do you think? <laughs> would, would you let your kids listen to this song? And I, I'm looking at it, and you probably still see the shock in my face as I'm listening to this. I'm like, I, I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And he, he said, why? And I, I said, I would not want that influencing their minds or my minds or, or anyone's minds. And I couldn't believe 74 million views on YouTube. Now, I don't know if it's all shocked parents looking at this and saying, this is out there and telling 74 million of their closest friends, or if it's, if it's you know, just people playing this song on repeat saying, this is the mantra for my life. This is what I would like. Um, I, I don't know what the mix is of people that have viewed this thing, but every parent can testify to this. Every parent knows how hard it is to guard their children from the negative influences of this world. And how challenging it could be to just do your best to guide them and lead them in directions that are healthy for them and to pray diligently to the Lord for His help. I can honestly say that at this season of my life, I find myself praying deep prayers on behalf of my children as I watch them one at a time leave the shelter of our family influence. And I'm like, all right, this is where it's really getting real in my mind. This was all theoretical. It's very real to me now. Like, this is the season that we're at. Lord, did we say what you wanted us to say? Did we model what you wanted us to model? Have we done what you've called us to do? Are they prepared for this? These are the questions that I ask, and I look at a portion of Scripture like this, and I love these verses. Because look who's included in this solemn assembly. Look who's included in this group. Look who's included here. It says, assemble the elders, but not just the elders. Gather the children. Gather the nursing infants. Bring them all in. The Lord wants us ultimately to be a blessing to our children. He wants us to be an influence to our children. Ultimately, that can only be done the, well when our hearts are sensitive to the Lord's leading, when we're relying on His wisdom and guidance. But He's encouraging us to let ourselves and let our families be set apart as belonging to Him. We see it illustrated in this Scripture, but it's a principle that comes up elsewhere in Scripture. I love what we're told when we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. If you know Jesus Christ, if Christ is your Lord, if Christ is your Savior, this is a verse that is referencing you. 
This is a portion of Scripture that says, look at, look, I mean, just look at how God refers to His people. He says, you're a chosen race. He's saying, I chose you. You're a royal priesthood. I've given you this privilege, the priesthood of all believers. A holy nation, a people for my own possession. Why? Well, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. The excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into light. He called us out of darkness and into His light. And here you have Joel as he's speaking to the people of Judah. And he's encouraging the people of Judah to do something that would display an understanding or an appreciation for the fact that they had been set apart. That they'd been called out. That they'd been set apart by the Lord as the Lord's special possession. They were called in this portion of Scripture to consecrate a fast and gather the people together for a solemn assembly, it says here. And this assembly, again, it was to include the elders, it was to include the adults, it was to include the children, it was to include even nursing infants, the way the Scripture reads here. So this wasn't a time for celebrating, it wasn't a time for feasting, it was a time for prayer, it was a time for tears, it was a time to to recognize the Lord's called us to live a set-apart life as unto Him, it's a time to regain an appreciation for what it looks like to live a life of faith, to what it, for what it looks like to live a life of holiness in the midst of a dark world, it was a time for the people to repent before the Lord and come before Him with tear-stained faces. Now, I'll tell you, I think just by virtue of personality or, or whatever it may be, or maybe it's a quirk, that usually when it comes to tears, I try and fight them. So if I notice that tears are coming, I try and fight them. I don't always win. Sometimes I win. Uh, some of you can cry easily and freely. Um, that's not where I'm at, but there's sometimes you just find yourself where you can't stop the tears from coming. As much as you want to fight it, you just can't stop it. And how many of our prayers have come with tears? Do you ever find yourself praying and then watching the tears start flowing and you realize, all right, I'm praying with tears right now. You know, there are times in my life where I've prayed soft and safe prayers, and then there are other times when my prayers have come with tears. And when I think about those seasons where my prayers have come with tears, and I'm thinking about this now through the lens of the people of Judah coming before the Lord, weeping before Him, mourning before Him, coming before Him in prayer with tears. I I was thinking this week, all right, what prompts me to, to pray with tears? What can actually cause the tears to show up on my face? Well, I think sometimes I pray with tears when I need a miracle. When I realize that the only thing that can fix the situation that I'm in or the situation that I'm praying about on behalf of somebody else is if God miraculously intervenes. Do you remember a couple months ago I told you right after church I was going across the street and I asked you to pray for somebody? Does anyone remember that? I asked our church family to pray because somebody over the, across the street had overdosed and was in a coma and was not expected to live. Guess what happened this week? Didn't happen immediately, but guess what happened this past week? He came out of the coma, and he's talking, and he's interacting with others, and he's smiling, and he's very much alive again. So if anyone, if anyone does not believe that God can do miraculous things as His people pray, I would testify to what's going on across the street from our church right now. Sometimes we pray with tears when we recognize that the only way that something's going to happen is if something miraculous 
takes place, if God intervenes in a miraculous way. And isn't it neat when he lets us see those miracles even in our generation? Sometimes I pray with tears when I'm grieving over sin in the lives of those that I love. So when there are people in my life that I love dearly, that I see that have welcomed things into their life that don't belong there, and you realize that for whatever reason they think this makes sense, and you know that you personally don't have the power to change it, but the Lord has the power to change it, you find yourself praying with tears as you're saying, Lord, help them to see the truth. Help them not to walk in darkness, but to walk in your marvelous light. Sometimes I find myself praying with tears when I recognize I've been running from God, that it's not somebody else, but it's me this time. I've been running from God and need to repent. And as I discover that, and as the Lord makes that clear to me, I find myself at times praying with tears. Sometimes I pray with tears, and this one gets me almost instantly. But when I see someone who's been lost and they come to faith in Jesus Christ, how can you not shed a tear of joy in a context like that, watching someone who's been lost coming to faith in Christ. And you know what the beauty of all of this is? Sometimes we think we have to have our act together and that our words need to be articulate and we need to come before the Lord with everything all in place, brushed and polished and ready to go, and yet you discover in Scripture that the Lord is not afraid of our messy tears. He's not afraid of our tears. Those things don't put Him off. He knows that they can often, that, that our tears can often be the fruit of a heart that's getting right with Him as we relearn again what it means to be set apart from the alluring and tempting promises and temptations of this world. These promises of this world that lead us in a dark direction. And as we repent of these things and we come before the Lord with tears, we recognize that He's called us to live set apart from these things. And He was calling the people of Judah to recognize this once again, so they were invited to come and bring their whole family and stand before the Lord's presence and pray and repent together. But you know what gets in the way of repentance? Let me finish with this thought this morning. Pride gets in the way of repentance. That's what gets in the way of us repenting. That's what gets in the way of us admitting to the Lord once again that we need Him. Pride. My pride. Your pride. And when you look at what Scripture invites us to do, it invites us to give up our pride and admit our need for mercy. Look at verse 17. It says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So pride something that the people of Judah had been embracing. They'd just been embracing pride. And now their circumstances were driving them to a spot of humility. Their idolatry, their outright ignorance of the teaching of God's Word. These were things that were a terrible testimony to their children, to the people around them, to the unbelieving nations that were surrounding them. They were going their own way. They were ignoring the voice of God. This is what they were doing. And now they were being judged through a locust plague. And as that was taking place, there was concern all of a sudden in the midst of this season of need. What are the other nations going to think of us now? What are they going to think about the name of God? Because they're going to observe these people that have been openly proclaiming that we are the people of God. We are the ones who worship God. But yet we're dealing with plague. We're dealing with, with disaster. We're dealing with all these issues. And for the sake of God's name, they were invited to seek God's mercy. 
They were invited to, to leave their pride behind and to submit themselves to the Lord again and admit their need for His mercy. But pride is a common fault among all people of every generation, right back to our first parents. So would you consider yourself a proud person? You don't have to answer that out loud, but would you consider yourself a proud person? Is that something that, you know, if the Lord gave an assessment of your life, if He said, these are character traits that I see in your life, would you consider yourself a proud person? Do you think the Lord would say, yes, so-and-so is a proud person? Or uh, would you say that, no, I don't necessarily think of myself as a proud person? Um, Let me say this, pride is a very sneaky thing. And pride has the capacity to blind us to what's actually going on around us. And when it's blinding us, when we're dealing with that blindness that comes from pride, we don't even recognize that it's present. I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, let's see, I, I, guess she, I guess her name used to be Nancy Lee DeMoss. Is that name familiar to anybody? But now I see her, uh, uh, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. Is that name familiar to anybody? All right, everybody's shaking their head no. I got something I want to share with you that, that she wrote. She, on her blog, wrote uh, a list of 41 questions that were asked with the goal of exposing pride in the hearts of those who claim to be followers of Christ. And I'd encourage you to read her list, her full list of 41 sometime, but let me just share a few samples with us right now. And these are things that we can ask ourselves if, if we're wondering, Lord, do I struggle with pride? Am I still you know, just kind of living my life as a proud man or a proud woman? Am I, am I still living my life as someone who's not admitting my need for mercy and not really appreciating your intervention on my behalf? These are the questions she encouraged, some of them, some of the questions she encourages us to ask. She asks this, do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than your mate or others in your church? Do you have a judgmental spirit toward those who don't make the same lifestyle choices you do? Dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards, things of that nature. Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those thoughts to others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your mate, your pastor, or other people in positions of leadership, teachers, youth director, etc.? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance, your hair, your makeup, your clothing, your weight, your body shape, avoiding appearances of aging? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, how much you are able to accomplish in that time? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Are are you argumentative? That's just a sample of the things that she had on our list. Try and remember to post the link later today on the church's Facebook page. But the point being, I thought it was a useful list because the idea is, okay, people of God, do we struggle with pride? 
are we struggling with the very thing that we're analyzing the people of Judah and saying, yeah, they really struggled with pride, but finally the Lord crushed their heart and said, all right, you need mercy instead. And finally they were coming to realize that. Well, do we realize that we need the same thing they needed? Are we wrestling with pride? And if so, are we, are we at a point where we're, where we're willing to say, all right, Lord, I need your mercy. I can't persist in this pride any longer. I need your mercy. The people of Judah were proud, but they needed mercy. We are also proud, but need mercy. But thankfully, let me say this as we wind up this morning, we can be recipients of the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, let me say, if you've been consumed with pride, if you've been consumed with arrogance, if you've been consumed with illusions of self-sufficiency, it's time to give that garbage up. Give it up. Because there's no greater day than today to return to the One who's always loved you. We can stop running from Christ and start running toward Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the things that You reveal to us in it. And Lord, we recognize that we wrestle with all sorts of things. We can be proud people. We could be people who think that somehow there's wisdom in running away from You instead of running toward You. But then we look at a portion of Scripture like this from Joel chapter 2, and we recognize that we're not the first people that have found ourselves in this kind of dilemma. That humanity has been doing this throughout the course of our existence. And sometimes, Lord, it, our, our pride takes the takes a fashion or, or takes the form of looking at Your Word and just kind of ignoring it or thinking that it primarily deals with other people and not realizing that You're trying to speak to us through it. Sometimes our pride is evidenced in us elevating ourselves over others, whether it be people in our immediate family or people that we don't even know at all. But Lord, these are things that we struggle with, and in our pride we think that we can somehow get away with just going in a direction that is absent of your intervention and absent of your wisdom and absent of your power. But Lord, we know that that is not your desire for us. Your desire is that we come back to you. And again, you tell us in your word that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in love, that you are the perfection of mercy, that you are the perfection of grace, that you are long-suffering with us. That you put up with us for a long time. And You do so with an eye toward our repentance. So Lord, we pray that by Your grace that, that we would begin to put You first in all matters, that we would begin to put You first in all areas, and that Your name would be honored and glorified in all aspects of our lives. Lord, we pray that it would be able to be said of us that we are people who run toward You through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ instead of trying to live our lives at a distance from You because the things of this world have such an appeal to us or such a lock on our hearts. Lord, we pray that You'd remove the blinders that our pride may have put in place, that You'd help us to see who You are and understand the truth of Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for the encouragement that You give to us from Your Word. We're thankful that we're able to start off our week today by looking at these things together. We're grateful for all of these things and for the privilege that it is to know You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.
Amen.